Well, I want to apologize for to the visitors today because um, you're coming in on week three of a little series we've been doing on redemptive ministry, redemptive leadership. So you may feel like, what? <laughs> what? But you can go online and kind of unravel later if you want. These are all posted online. We're looking uh, today at redemptive leadership, and there's probably no greater barometer of redemptive leadership than when a leader has to respond to the failure of a fellow leader. There is no better example of a redemptive response to that situation than the dynamics that often took place between Jesus and Peter, but especially with Peter's great failure of denying Christ. Here is kind of a humorous example of Peter's impetuousness in John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Let's pray. Lord, we lift up your word to you today. We ask you to anoint and bless it to our hearts, to our minds, to our spirits, that we might live the way you desire us to live. We might do what you desire us to do. We might love the way you love, O oh God, and bring glory to your name. Amen. Don't you just love the way that Peter rolls? I mean, Seriously. I mean, we all do stuff like this, right? Blurt out some bizarre statement only to have a deep pride and serve back to us as humble pie. But Jesus, the master of redemptive speech, seizes the opportunity embedded in Peter's folly to reveal a greater purpose. And this is the essence of redemptive leadership. Do you understand what I have done to you? Talk about a loaded question. Do you understand what I have done to you? This is amazingly profound. Wouldn't you agree? And actually, the whole scene is profound, not only in its interaction, but also as a type and shadow of what was to follow. The indicator is found in Jesus' response to Peter's refusal to participate in what Jesus was about to do. 
In John 13, 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. After what? Afterwards what? After you wash my feet? And what's he referring to? Well, this is coded language. Okay? Referencing another event equal to and of similar impact as the coming of the word made flesh. You've heard it before, right? Jesus was always pointing to it when he spoke of his work on the cross, his coming resurrection, and his disciples would get confused and depressed. He would assure them with the afterwards event. Here's one, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, can you imagine you're hanging out with Jesus for three years plus? I mean, the things that you're seeing, the things that you're smelling, tasting, feeling, experiencing. I mean, heaven's opening. He's being glorified in front of Moses and Elijah show up on the mountaintop. I mean, really cool stuff is happening. And all of a sudden he says, listen, it's better for you that I go away. What are you, kidding? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That little packet right there is, is worth him going away. The ruler of this world is judged. Listen, the enemy has no power over your life except what you grant him. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that I will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there is the afterwards event. This is what Jesus is referring to. You don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterwards, when the helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, revealing truth to you, all of a sudden, you're going to understand that's what this was all about. But there is so much more revealed in this interaction between Jesus and Peter. Remember, this is redemptive leadership, and in redemptive dialogue, there are two powerful components, impartation and revelation. Jesus imparts to Peter the truths of the redemptive process up to that moment in time and then goes on to reveal to him, brings revelation to him of what happens as the process comes to full fruition, the afterwards. So let's go back to the coded language. John 13, 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, 
What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So after Jesus says to Peter that he may not understand this now, but will afterwards, Peter remains adamant. Have you ever done that? You'll never wash my feet. Now, I hope you've learned by now, you never say never to God. Right? I'll never go to Africa. I'll never do this ministry. I'll never do that. Right? Never say never to God. Jesus' response to Peter is very intense. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Wow. And at first glance, this may not sound like redemptive speech, but in the original Greek, it does not translate as condemnation, but as an informative plea. The Greek word is miros. And in Strong's Concordance, it's in the Greek, uh, 3313 is the number. It's a primary word. It means to get a section or an allotment, a division or a share, to get your share, to get your piece of the pie, to get your inheritance, what is coming to you, what is due you. So Jesus isn't threatening Peter with rejection. He is, in fact, redeeming Peter from an error that would deprive him of his portion, his allotment, his future share in the kingdom. And Peter, again, does what Peter does. He blurts out a response based on what he thinks he needs to do rather than being led by the experiential interaction taking place through him and Jesus. Peter gets religious and starts defaulting to the Hebraic practices of ritual washing. Oh, okay, here, my head, my hands, all of these were required under the law of Moses. But they are not what Jesus is offering. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. So what does he mean? How is Peter clean already? John 15, 1. It's Jesus speaking. I know that because it's in red. Right? He always spoke in red. I don't know why. Something about the blood. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, now listen, here it is, already you are clean. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And the word for word there is logos. So here we go again. Follow me in this. Jesus as the Logos. The Word become flesh. John 1.1, 1, 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word in that sentence, Word, 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 is Logos, Logos, Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Jesus is the Word of God, the Logos expressed in human flesh. Your Bible is the Logos. It's the expressed Word of God recorded. So Jesus, as the Logos, has been speaking words to his disciples. And when the Word of God, Logos, speaks words, they are, by virtue of who he is, the Word Logos of God, and that is exactly what Jesus says. You are clean because of the logos that I have spoken to you. Every word that Jesus spoke instantly became, as recorded, logos. When the logos speaks, he speaks logos. He doesn't speak information, right? Because the logos is the word of God expressed. Jesus as the manifest Word of God, expressing words, can only express logos. So that's what he's saying to the disciples. You are clean because I'm expressing the logos over you. My word, my essence, who I am, is washing you. As I express myself, you're being cleansed. And you've all experienced that, haven't you? When you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, As you began to read the Bible, all of a sudden, your thinking changes. All of a sudden, your behavior changes. All of a sudden, things that never bothered you suddenly bother you. Your speech changes. You don't use words you used to use, use, and all of a sudden, you're speaking Christianese. Where'd that come from? Right? That's how it works. But these are not just words spoken at the disciples, as in information. These are the words spoken as emanating out from the heart of God in relationship with his own to prepare and equip them for his own divine and redemptive purposes. And these words are cleansing to the soul. They bathe and wash the spirit from the cares of the world and the burdens of religiosity. But remember what Jesus had told them. I am going away, but a helper is coming. I have washed you with the word, the logos, to prepare you to go into all the world to preach the good news, and your feet will get filthy out there. That's the point. You're already clean, but I'm sending you out into a dirty world. I've already washed you, but you're going to get soiled. Your soul will get tainted, your heart will get troubled, and you will get wearied in well-doing. And the only way to be in the world and not of it is to be continually washed in and by the Holy Spirit, the afterwards. Because the Holy Spirit is the earnest, the seal of God for the promised inheritance, the portion allotted. And the only way for that to happen is to be in continual relational dialogue with the Holy Spirit, just as they had been with Jesus. 
Peter's first impulse was to decline being washed by Jesus in this manner. But Jesus redeemed him from that folly. How often has the church declined the same offer of an intimate and powerful relationship with the Holy Spirit? Claiming and teaching that the active presence of the Holy Spirit ceased at the end of the first century like it was some kind of magic day in God's time plan. Oh, we don't do that anymore. I know I'm never changing, but we don't do that anymore, right? I don't think so, Tim. Church has been maintaining a form of godliness but denying the power, putting on airs of moral superiority and cleanliness while running around the world with filthy feet, never getting washed. It has never been enough to just know about the word. Even when the word dwelt among us, it was not enough to just know about him. The standard has always been to know him, face to face, heart to heart. It must go beyond mere head knowledge to experiential, I know that I know that I know. Because I have been touched by his love, his healing, his grace, his Holy Spirit. His truth. There is a scripture that I had had stumbled over for a number of years. It's in John 8.32. Jesus is speaking again. He says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I, I read that. I heard that early on in uh, my relationship with Jesus and my response to that. This great verse, this awesome promise uh, right out of the mouth of Jesus uh, was that I was encouraged to delve deeply into my Bible. I wanted to know the truth because I wanted to be free, and I wasn't. I had been saved. Point in time, I had received the Holy Spirit, but I still wasn't free. After years of study, I wasn't feeling all that much more free. Oh, some things had definitely changed, and some things had improved, but the deep places, the really deep places, the secret places of my inner being where deep woundings live, I felt no more liberty than when I was a heathen. How much more truth do I need to know to be free? One day through a long series of events and circumstances and in a, the context of an inner healing ministry session, Jesus was invited into my place of deep pain to confront the lies that kept me bound there. And in a moment of brilliant light, Jesus came as the truth and spoke the truth up against the lies that kept me in bondage. And I knew the truth. In the person of Jesus Christ, I knew the truth, and I was instantly free. You see, it can't be up here. It has to be way in here. This is where we lie in bondage. This is where we suffer. This is where the pain emanates from, way deep down inside this place we call our heart, our bowels, the inner places of our lives. It doesn't go on up in the knowledge realm at all. If it did, we'd all be walking around free.
There is such power in the relational realities of our religious concepts. Our religious knowledge becoming becomes our knowing because the realities hold our portion and allotment in the kingdom that is and is to come. Remember, he said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. Are you living abundant life? Are you living less than that? You haven't gotten your allotment. You haven't, you haven't come to know him in the deepest places of your being. You might know him up here, and you can be going to Sunday church and adult Sunday school and midweek Bible studies and small groups and still be trapped in this place here and suffering in this place here. You've got to come to know him. If the relational power of the word spoken by the word washed the disciples clean, then the relational power of the Holy Spirit as the ongoing manifest presence will keep our feet clean as we walk in this world to bring about God's redemptive purpose by sharing his word and demonstrating his power. A gospel is not in word alone, but in a demonstration of the power of God. Acts 1, this is out of the King James Version. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, but you shall receive power afterwards. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses unto me, in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. A cloud received him out of their sight. It's interesting to me, the, the closing of this, this set of verses where Jesus is saying, this is the afterwards you've been waiting for. Go and get ready for this. That the last sentence as he spoke these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him. Just fall in line with the end of his dialogue after he had washed their feet in John thirteen twelve. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. It's the same dynamic. He resumed his place. Jesus has washed us with his word. He continually washes us with his Holy Spirit, he has clothed himself with glory and is seated again in heavenly places. He has resumed his place at the right hand of his Father. So back to Peter and his great failure. And let me say that Peter's failure began where most great failures begin. Peter had an opinion. I want everyone to say, I have an opinion on that. Come on. I have an opinion on that. And nobody's going to change my mind. We all do it, don't we? Mm. 
He had an opinion about himself, and he acted on it. Please don't think that this is an oddity. In fact, it is common to all of us. Romans 12.3 says this, For by by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among us, all-inclusive, right, to everyone among us, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, Paul is saying, abandon your opinion. Get God's heart on the matter. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We pick up the scene at the end of the Last Supper. This is in Matthew 26, 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They're heading towards Gethsemane. Jesus said to them, this is really good news, right? You will all fall away because of me this night. Oh, I'm encouraged. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Here comes Peter, foot and mouth. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, you got to realize he's in the middle of them. He's in the middle of the group. If they all fall away. right from the middle of the group, if they all fall away. Not this guy. I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, here comes an opinion, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I mean, what choice do they have now? Right? That's a pretty high opinion that Peter has about himself, don't you think? About his sense of loyalty, about his ability to stand even in the face of death. But most of all, and we miss this, but most of all, and this is really the important part, Peter believed that his opinion of himself was more accurate than the word of God. Right? The word of God was being spoken right at him. Oh, no, you're wrong. (laughs) Can you imagine Judgment Day? (laughs) Oh, no, you're wrong. (laughs) Come on, Pete. I love Jesus' response to this. Peter, you won't even make it through the night. (laughs) Before the rooster crows, you'll be undone, essentially, right? So let's see who's right. Jesus gets arrested and is brought to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, for a mock trial. We pick up the story in Matthew 26, 69. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said to him, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. 
But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Now, a big brave Peter, right? A servant girl, the language in the Greek is referring to a little girl about 12 years old. So a kid comes up to Peter and says, Hey, when you with that group? Last time you were in town, weren't you? Like really close to him? Right? <laughs> Denial number one. Oh, you got to understand, Jesus, she was 12. And when he came, and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl, another kid, she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. And, and that doesn't, that's not good. I, <laughs> I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Wow. Wow, huh? Look at, do you know what's doing this to Peter? Peter's opinion of himself is unraveling all over him. If he had responded in humility, if he had just stood there and said, oh, Lord, help us, he would not have gone through this. This is Peter's opinion of himself unraveling on himself. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crowed. Ouch. Looks like Peter was wrong and Jesus was right, but that is not why Jesus told Peter what would happen, just to prove that he was right. He doesn't need to do that. He just is right, because right? he's God. That's right. He told him the truth to redeem Peter from his lie-based thinking and false impressions of who he was and what he was able to do. If you look at Peter's response in verse 75, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. He remembered what Jesus said to him. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, there was another betrayal that night, wasn't there? Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Do you know where Judas went? He went to the hanging tree and committed suicide. Peter didn't. Peter did three times what Judas did once, but was redeemed. He went out and he wept bitterly because Jesus had deposited his word into Peter's heart. Peter, when confronted with his own inabilities, was able to process through his failure in a healing way. Now watch what happens the next time Jesus and Peter get together after a meal in John 21. This is after the resurrection. They're now up in the Galilee. They're hanging out. And uh, Peter says to the group, I'm going fishing. Now that, that might 
sound like Lucas and Tom getting together, you know, for, for a day out on the sea. But this is a huge statement for Peter. If you start at the beginning of the Gospels, all the Gospels talk about this, you know, Peter was a fisherman, right? Jesus comes along the shore, and he says, hey, Pete, dump the net, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Give up that and take on me, right? So Peter has gone through three and a half years of training. He's gone through his denial. He's seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And now there's this lag time, you know, and sometimes we go through these emotional highs and we kind of crash. And you say, I don't know if I can keep doing this, man. You know what? I'm, I'm all done. I'm going fishing. Fishing was not a sport for Peter. It was his living three and a half years ago. So what Peter is really saying to the other disciples is, listen, I quit. I'm going back to the fishing industry. Now, what do they all say? They do exactly what they did when Peter denied, said he, you know, they all said the same thing. Oh, we'll die for you too. They always seem to do what Peter said. Right? So what do they do here? They said to him, we will go with you. <laughs> right? So they went out and got into the boat, and, but that night they caught how much? Why do you think that is? Because without me you can do how much? Nothing, right? So you, can, you, can't, you can't come into Jesus and then abandon ship. I mean, you can try, and you can suffer the consequences of eating no fish or having no success or whatever, but when, when you've been caught by Jesus, put your hand to the plow and keep plowing. That's the message here. Don't turn around. Don't go back. Okay. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They said to him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Didn't he do that somewhere else in the storyline? Yeah. No. So they cast it and now they were they were able to haul it. They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, and it just happens to be the writer of this gospel, John, right? It is the Lord. When Peter when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. In other words, he was out there fishing naked. Naked. <laughs> and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. All their labors, even when they labored for the Lord. Jesus already had prepared for them what they were seeking to get for themselves. When they arrived on shore, not only did he already have fish, he already had it cooked, and he already had bread. Right? Listen, when you are in pursuit of God's calling, 
He already has it prepared for you. Understand that. Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask. He's a good God. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Now, when had they done this before? Right? The feeding, right? I mean, they, they were recognizing what was going on. And they, they had this dialogue on the lake, you know, when, when G, they said to Jesus, is it because we brought no bread? And he said to them, don't you remember what we just did? I've had 5,000 of it, 4,000, and you're worrying about bread? I got bread you don't even know about, right? I mean, they were always processing this stuff wrong. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, now here is redemptive leadership in action. Watch this transaction. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What do you think that these are? Come on, somebody give me a, a shout. Huh? The disciples? Give me another guess. Fish, right? Didn't Peter just haul that net full of fish on shore? Didn't Peter said, listen, I'm giving up. I'm going fishing. So he's got to make that choice. Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love this life more than that life? Didn't you make a decision back here? Are you reneging on that? Do you love me more than these? Now, now I, I think it was kind of a setup because how can you look at a net full of dying fish and think about love at the same time, right? Doesn't work for me, you know. The deck was kind of stacked. Luke, Luke's an exception to every rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. To really understand the depth of the conversational interaction between Jesus and Peter after breakfast, we have to look at the Greek use of the word love. 
In English, we use the word love like a blanket statement for a variety of human interaction. But in the Greek, there are three different words used for love that covered three different expressions of emotion. There is eros. We get the word erotic from eros. It refers to erotic or sexual love. Then there is filio, which refers to friendship or fond affection. Then there is agape, which simply means to love. And you could probably capitalize love in this instance. It is, in its application, it is the greater love that Jesus refers to that lays down its life for a friend. So let's read the interchange again with the Greek words in place. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me enough to lay down your life for me? Remember, that was Peter's opinion of himself, right? So what has Jesus begun to do? He's begun to redeem Peter back from his failure. He said to him, yes, Lord. You know I filio you. So what do we see here? Peter has come to a realization about his former opinion and adjusted it to the reality of who he is. I thought I agaped you, but I've discovered, confronted by a 12-year-old girl, that I really didn't. So he's adjusted himself. He said to him, anyways, he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you filio me? Oop. Now Jesus is asking. And he's flipped it over, hasn't he? Jesus has condescended to what Peter is able to do. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you filio me? See, in Peter's eyes, he thought that this was failure, but it wasn't. He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I filio you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. What did Jesus just do? He restored Peter. He restored Peter to the man that he had called him to be. Drawn him away from his self-opinion into the reality of God's anointing on his life and said once again, you didn't lose it, Peter, by going out fishing. Follow me. Come on. You're going to tend my sheep. You're going to care for my flock. You're going to love my lambs. Here is the redemptive message for us as it was for Peter. Neither your opinions nor your failures 
can undo the purposes of God or redeems in our lives. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Even when you fail, even when you stumble, even when your opinion is an error, I will draw you to myself. Let's pray. So, Lord, here we are, Holy Spirit, afterwards. After these redemptive stories, after your word, after the word has spoken to our hearts, after, Lord, we've been washed by the word, by the logos. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Perhaps this morning, O God, as your word has washed over us, we have realized that we're stuck in opinion. We've realized that we have come up short sometimes. We realize that in our own minds, we're stalled out. But Lord, you're wooing us on. You're calling us further. We can hear your voice somewhere in the distance of our hearts and minds saying, follow me. So we welcome you in this place, Holy Spirit, to come as the helper. Come and wash over us. Cleanse our feet today. Wash away the debris of the hard lives that we live in the world around us. Lord, some of us are wearied with well-doing. Some of us, oh God, have been crushed by circumstance and situations. Lord, some of us have stumbled and fallen even by our own decisions and activities. But all of that, oh God, has been placed before the cross today. And we bid you, Holy Spirit, to offer it up for us to the risen Christ to be redeemed. We ask you, O Holy Spirit, to begin to turn our hearts and affections towards knowing Jesus in a greater way today. Come, Holy Spirit. Touch our minds, touch our hearts, touch our spirits. Awaken and enliven us to the reality of the great love of God that reconciles and redeems us over and over and over again until we begin to reflect the image of the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. Clean our mirrors, O God, that we might reflect you clearly to a world, O God, that is lost and dying and living in fear of death. You have given us good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have empowered us by your own Holy Spirit, and you have enabled us, O God, by the fellowship of the saints to be a presence of power in the world. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.